Well, afternoon, everyone. Uh, we had a wonderful chapel service this morning. It was a wonderful blessing getting to hear Dr. Michael Strauss, uh, who is a particle physicist. I <clears throat> attended an event at a person's home uh, Sunday night in which uh, Dr. Strauss spoke to a, 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 a group of uh, family, uh, Christian families, and, and in that home, uh, the teenage son was working on his physics uh, homework, and he was stuck on this problem. And so uh, after it was all over, you know, he, Josh came down, and, and, and in about five minutes, you know, he, he had it all solved and all worked out with him. And I told Josh afterwards, I said, you know, that has never, in all the years that I studied mathematics and, and things, I never had something like this happen in which, you know, as I'm struggling on a problem, in walks um, a PhD, a, a, you know, a renowned scholar in that field to help me with my high school homework. Never happened. Never happened. But I, doc I didn't charge him hardly. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, that... It, Dr. Uh, Dr. Strauss is um, one of the, the one of the things that he does so very well is that he has a very winsome and approachable uh, 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 demeanor about him, and I think it serves him well in the venues in which he speaks. Why don't you tell us how many how often do you speak in a in a in a in a university setting in which you show, share your faith? What kind of what kind of interaction do you have? Yeah. So, oh, wow, that's loud. Um, I do speak at. Churches, high schools, um, universities. I, I'm a, you know, I have a real day job, so um, I try to limit my time where I travel to weeks that I'm giving an exam, so I don't miss my teaching responsibilities or spring breaks. But I speak somewhere at a church or university or um, high school about science and Christianity, probably about forty to fifty times a year, so almost once a week. Um, so, what kind of uh Tell, tell yeah. me, you know, what's the spectrum of responses? Where is the bell curve? I mean, where, what's... Where's, where's... Um, the spectrum's all over. I was joking at the table. I get um, flack from Christians who are young earth creationists. They think I'm a heretic because I believe in the Big Bang. And I get flack from atheists who think I'm stupid because I believe in God. And so regardless of where I go, there is a contingent of people who want to give me a hard time. But... You know, I firmly believe that if what you're speaking is truth, then truth is ultimately going to win out. You don't have to exaggerate. You don't have to browbeat. You don't have to demean if what you're talking about is true. And I really believe that um, what the things I'm sharing about how science and Christianity mesh, what God has shown, how God has shown himself through nature is true. Um, you know, uh, as far as the age of the universe and things like that, the church I go to, this is a non-essential issue, as it should be. We believe God's the creator. The how of creation is um, discussed and debated. And I always joke that if a third of Christians are young earth creationists and a third are old earth creationists and a third are evolutionary creationists, when we get to heaven, two-thirds of us are going to be wrong. Yeah. And so we need to learn to live e with each other, love <laughs> each other, and um, admit that even if our convictions are strong, we could be wrong as well. So, <clears throat> you're, that didn't really answer your question. So, usually yeah. I'm received fairly well. I always get <laughs> flack from somewhere, but um, the, let me tell the one story I said. So, I I've, I've often have somebody come up to me and say, I, you don't know me, but three years ago you spoke at such and such a university on science and faith, 
and I was an atheist, and that talk started me on a journey to become a Christian. And I've actually heard that multiple times from people. So, you know, God is gracious. He's used this night ministry of mine to affect people's lives. And <clears throat> that's exactly how uh, I envision uh, evangelism being done in that type of context, in which you have those who are people of faith uh, doing their work with excellence uh, in, and, and demonstrating that in their vocation. And uh, that gives you a, an opening and a door that perhaps uh, otherwise wouldn't have. Um, you are a PK. Uh, your dad uh, is a pastor. Uh, you're, you, you've told me a little bit. Why don't you tell us a little bit about um, your, your, your parents, your, your brothers, what they do, and um, maybe even uh, we'll, we'll talk about how you did not go to Dallas Theological Seminary. Yeah, so actually, sir, my grandfather was a traveling speaker. Some of you older theologians may have heard of someone named Layman Strauss. He wrote multiple books. He spoke at multiple conferences. That was my grandfather. <laughs> your grandfather, okay. Yeah. What, why are we laughing? Did I we... heard your grandfather oh. speak whenever I was a teenager. There you go. Yeah. Yeah, and yeah, and, uh, wow. All right, so um, now I know how old you are. So anyway, um, uh, my dad was a pastor. Um, most he, he was at a few different churches, but most of his ministry was in San Diego County. Um, and my, I have three brothers. One is a, currently a seminary professor at Bethel Seminary in San Diego. One is a missionary who's been in multiple countries. He's currently in Turkey. And one is... Uh, has passed away uh, from cancer, but he was a missionary in Ethiopia for 20 years and then a seminary professor at Dallas. So I'm the only one that God called not in professional Christian ministry, but yet God's calling to me was just as clear. In fact, I tell students all the time, there's nothing special about being called into professional Christian ministry. You better be sure that God is calling you whatever it is, whether you're a retail clerk or a pastor or an experimental particle physicist. And so uh, God clearly called me when my PhD advisor at UCLA learned of my family history. He asked me if I was the black sheep of the family, of course. And I said, no, because those, you know, my relationship with Christ is still so important. Um, I'm sure I didn't say it that like that. I'm sure I hemmed and hawed a little bit because he was my PhD advisor. But uh, nevertheless, uh, the story of how I got into physics is clearly God directing me each step of the way. So you actually got an acceptance letter to DTS when you were born. Yeah, my dad was working on his THD at Dallas when I was born, and Dr. John Walver, the president of the university, sent a letter to my dad that I still have that says, congratulations on the birth of your son. When he's old enough to come to Dallas, he can get in any time. So when I applied to Dallas, I was immediately rejected. <laughs> and that's true. So tell them how in the world did you end up at, not at DTS, and it, you did end up at UCLA. So when I graduated from college, I went to Biola University, which is a Christian college. I knew I liked science and theology. I didn't know what I wanted to do in life. I had no role models in science, um, at least not at you know the PhD level. So I applied to Dallas, and I applied to a few universities in physics. Um, and... It's interesting, I did get rejected from Dallas. Dallas Seminary, for two years and only two years of their entire existence, had a policy that if you didn't know God was calling you into professional Christian work, you would automatically be rejected. 
So my dad was actually either on the board of the seminary that year or the following year, and I have a letter from the president saying I get in and I'm graduating from a Christian college and I have a high GPA and high GRE scores and I got rejected. And I always think it's because God didn't want me in seminary. That should have been a door that was open. And they had that policy for two years. So somewhere out there, there is somebody else with the same story <laughs> saying, you know, I didn't get into seminary one year because God didn't want me. And so it actually turns out I should not have been accepted to graduate school in physics. I had not a physics major, but a physical science major, which is kind of like a physics minor. Somehow I got accepted to UCLA. I realized about the first day of grad school, probably, that I was in over my head because I had had, I was deficient in a year or two of physics classes. So I went to the advisor, uh, the graduate advisor at UCLA and told him what classes I was deficient in. And he looked me in the eye and he said, how did you get in here? And so God taught me a really powerful lesson the very first week of grad school that he closes doors that shouldn't be closed, like seminary, and he opens doors that shouldn't be open, like graduate school in physics, because he wants to put you someplace. And, and my, my further journey is like that all the time. Every time I came to a fork in the road, um, which direction should my life take, uh, the doors closed that shouldn't be closed, open that shouldn't be open. And God moved me there, which is really good because life is hard if you haven't learned. And so when you get to those points where you go, is this where God wants me? Because it doesn't seem to make sense. It's great to look back at those, you know, stones of remembrance or whatever and say, yeah, this is exactly where God wants me because he put me here through circumstances that should not have happened. So as somebody who's studying science and you're a person of faith, reading uh, the Bible as the Word of God, did you, did you have any kind of progression in your thought, or were you always comfortable with the old earth position, or was there a, a dark night of the soul? Just what was your journey? Yeah, so I grew up in the 60s and 70s, when, and I read, I like science, I like to think, I was always a thinking person, so I read all the literature that Christians were writing about how science and faith went together, and it was by... Dwayne Gish and Henry Morris, and they were young earth creationists, so I thought that was the way to fit science and faith together, that the earth was young and the scientists were missing out on what nature really said, and as a graduate student in physics, um, or in a young postdoc, I can't remember exactly, I decided, if I'm going to be a physicist, I need to understand this, so I decided to go to scripture with a clean slate. My I have such a high view of scripture, you know, I believe it's inerrant in its original manuscripts and authoritative. And, um, and so my dad had a study that was floor to ceiling books, just massive books. So I got, I walked in that study and it was a process of a few months. It was over summer or something. And I got all the books that described why the Bible says the earth is young, the 24 hour um, viewpoint. And I got all books that talked about why uh, the Bible says it's not young, and those were on two sides of the desk. It's still vivid in my memory. And in the middle, I put all the um, unbiased things, interlinear Bibles and Hebrew lexicons and everything that uh, someone who speaks English could try to understand the Hebrew. And it was the study of Scripture, actually, that I would read what the young earth creationist says Scripture means and read what the old earth. And to my surprise at the time, those who were exegeting with an older perspective actually agreed with the unbiased resources more than those that are exegeting with the young earth uh, prescription. But yet the young earth people say they always start with the Bible. And so this was, a, this was actually a turning point. Um, I remember the last thing I, that, that changed my mind was looking at Psalm 90, which Moses also wrote, 
but it was a process of going. All my life, I've been told that if you believe the Bible, this is the view you hold. And I remember thinking when I sat down, I'm not going to force scripture to say something it doesn't say, because I know people that do that. And it was through, you know, I, my brother, who's a theologian who has a PhD from Aberdeen and is a New Testament scholar, <laughs> la laughs at me when I say I'm an amateur theologian. But, you know, he's my brother, so he can do that. But I, I kind of consider myself an amateur theologian because I've... You know, if you go to my house for Christmas, exegesis and hermeneutics is the table talk because that's what everybody in my family does. So it was really through study of scripture in a um, deliberate process that I changed my mind. So you're very comfortable with an old earth uh, uh, position and you explained your view of the Big Bang so very well. Uh, tell, us, tell us what you think about a, a historical couple. Yeah, <laughs> of course. Um, <laughs> So people ask me, you know, in, in a viewpoint where science that we, that scientists, secular scientists accept, and when you try to, let me put this down, when you try to correlate that with scripture, um, what's the hardest thing? And the hardest thing is exactly who were Adam and Eve and when did they live? Um, I think that um, a historical couple, a real Adam and Eve who are historical people um, is the most likely explanation from scripture, and it's certainly viable within the scientific realm. By the way, the other thing that's really important is that this, the issue of the age of the universe is entirely separate from the issue of evolution. There are many old earth creationists who are not evolutionary creationists, who don't believe God used evolution. And, and a lot of times, particularly from old earth creationist critics, they try to lump those two together to say, if you believe the universe is 14 billion years old, they call it the evolutionary paradigm, but it's not. Evolution is a separate issue. So I think that um, if the science ever showed that there was not a single first couple, you could still accommodate Adam and Eve through other ways. But I think, you know, a literal Adam and Eve is the most likely explanation, both biblically and scientifically, for what's out there. So if you have some questions you would like to ask Dr. Strauss, raise your hand and just say your first name and then ask him your question. Um, as a... Uh, about anything. No questions are out of bounds, right? Okay. Um, who are you rooting for in the... No, I'm sorry. Yeah. <laughs> My daughter's a graduate student at UNC, so I got to go for UNC, actually. <laughs> Suddenly, like the Sanhedrin, well, if, this because, room has been divided. <laughs> <laughs> so actually, Oklahoma's my first choice, but they're a nine seed and they're going to lose first round, so it's sad. <laughs> so questions, raise your hand if you have a question for Dr. Strauss. Okay, Dr. Hammett. Yeah, John, uh, are there scientists out there in, that we would know whose views agree with you, like John Collins or some people like that? Who would you say have been people that you, you feel you resonate with? So probably the organization I resonate with most is Reasons to Believe out of Covina, California. Um, they're old earth creationists. They have good scholars. I think they do science and exegesis fairly well. So Hugh, Hugh Ross, Fazrana, Jeff Zvering, Ken Samples. Um, those are people I actually know pretty well. I've worked with them on and off. Okay. But, you know, I think, yeah, so that, that's the short answer. Okay. Dave, thank you so much for the chapel message this morning. It was a real blessing and encouragement. Um, I noticed that in your presentation, a lot of the scientists that you were quoting tended to be from you know, 70s, 80s, or earlier. There were a few kind of 2000s and then 2016. And I was just wondering what's kind of going on in the scientific community right now in this 
on this topic and in this perspective? Yeah, that's a really great question. In fact, when I speak like at a university like North Carolina State, about two-thirds through the talk, I kind of talk, I've talked about the origin, the design, and then I say exactly this, and I show that um, the Big Bang started in the 1930s, although there's still, you know, research on it. The um, Anthropic Principle started in the 1980s, there's still research on it, or 60s, and the Rare Earth Hypothesis kind of started in the 1990s. And, and in order to, and, be, and that's why the quotes are from there. It's when the major research was going on. But what I say is then what's happened since. And actually what's happened since is there's been a lot of atheists who have written popular books to try to debunk these arguments. Because theists have been saying this for too long as far as they're concerned now. Um, this is not new stuff. And so what I do then is I walk through some of the atheist arguments that have really been developed in the last 10 years that try to debunk this and say why they don't really, they're not really threatening to these arguments. But that's a great question because when you do look at those quotes, and for a while I thought I need to quit giving this talk because the quotes are old, but the real answer is that that's when the work was done. And, and the, the subsequent work has just reinforced it. But nobody's saying things in general with quite the same ferocity because I think they've seen theists use it for a while and they become a little reluctant to say a super intellect who's monkeyed with the physics and no blind forces were speaking about nature. Um, Paul Davies continues to write and make some bold statements. But uh, yeah, that's a great observation and a great question. Next question. I think, uh, I think I heard you say it a, a talk recently where you said that, uh, that the evidences are for design, so therefore atheists have to appeal to that which we don't know. Yeah. Uh, would, you, would you elaborate on that? Yeah, so you know, Christians are often accused of uh, appealing to what's called God of the gaps arguments. If we don't understand something, God must have done it. The problem with the God of the gaps argument, so an example, right? Ancient people didn't understand thunder, so Thor, the god of thunder, must do it. And then when we understand that lightning and thunder are electrical discharge, then there's no room for a god anymore. And so in general, god of the gaps arguments are not good arguments because they infer or imply that if I can fill that with an explanation from nature, I've removed god. There's, first of all, that's not biblical, right? God works within nature. This is what providence is all about. Um, but anyway, uh, so what's happened is... The, the evidence that I've shared today is known by scientists who think about these things. So if I don't want to have a beginning of the universe, we don't really know what happened in about the first 10 to the minus 12 seconds after the Big Bang. We don't really know what happened in the first trillionth of a second. And so if I want to avoid a beginning, I have to invent new physics, new scientific knowledge that we don't know, and stick it in that first 10 to the 12 seconds and say, this new physics, which has no corroborating evidence, will supersede what we do know that the universe looks like it had a beginning. And this happens with the fine-tuning, it happens with the origin, and you'll find that atheists who, or, or naturalists who don't want to accept, well, I don't know their motivation, but they will continue to put in unknown physics in the areas that we don't know to try to supersede these kinds of conclusions. I call it atheism of the gaps. So what happens if, you know, we discover more about the first 10 to the minus 12 seconds and it looks like it has a beginning? The gap will still be there and, and, and this is what's going on. And when you read these books um, by atheists who are trying to debunk this, uh, these kinds of arguments, whether it's Larry Krauss or Stephen Hawking 
or Victor Stenger or whatever, what you'll find is that all of their arguments are proposing unknown ideas in physics that would supersede what we do know to try to avoid these kinds of conclusions. It's really quite interesting. The tables have turned. The science points to God, so the atheist has to fill the gaps in with no God. Next question. Yes, Dr. Williams. So uh, prior to the birth of the universe, uh, was there anything? Yeah, nobody knows, of course, is the right answer. And the singularity is kind of the, 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 the term that I have sometimes seen there. And so I, I, I don't study this stuff yeah. that much, but it's something that's, I think, so, kind of interesting. to. Yeah, yeah. so singularity means an infinity. So what happens is when you take the equations that we know describe the universe back to time equals zero, you start to get infinities. Most scientists believe if you have an infinity, it means that your equation probably isn't working right. Um, although there are infinities in nature, we know how to deal with. Um, so people like Stephen Hawking will try to avoid this singularity. Now the problem is, I'm convinced you can have a beginning without a singularity. And, and so without a true infinity, you can still have a beginning. Um, and I could talk about that. But what's before that, we don't know. So some people, we do, we do believe that if you look at the science we know, um, you can't have an infinite number of universes that cycle, you know, expand and contract. There's entropy problems with that. So we don't know what happened before. So, so the question is that I, I like to postulate, suppose we found there was a previous universe that somehow created this universe. Well, there's still a few problems. This thing I mentioned in my talk called the BGV theorem says that you can't go too far back before one of those universes must have had a beginning. And so all the physics we know says maybe, even if you want to try to push a universe before this one, you, one shortly before ours has to have a beginning. But the other thing is, you know, what do we, I think we as Christians need to be careful what Scripture says and doesn't say. What Scripture says is that this universe had a beginning in which God created the heavens and the earth. It does not tell us what God was doing before that. How many universes would an infinite God create? Right, so if we find out that this universe is simply a result of a subsequent dying universe, does that you know, take away from what Scripture says? To me, no. What, we're, what Scripture says has been substantiated. This universe had a beginning. That's all we know. And so are, am I going to tell God you could not have created a previous universe before this one? Well, we know there's at least three universes, right? There's one that the angelic beings lived in most likely before ours. There's this one, and there's a future one to come. So if we're told of three, how many would an infant God create? But the, the scientific answer is we have no clue what happened before this one or why this one even came into existence. So then with the, the, the perennial question, um, so how, how could something come from nothing? There had to be something because... So this is what I say to my naturalist friends. In your worldview, every effect has a cause. Every effect has a cause. So you want to make you you have to have an infinite regression of causes. Although people like Larry Krauss will say this universe came from nothing, and the way he defines nothing, only him and Richard Dawkins think it's really nothing. Everybody else thinks it's something, but um, but the the words you'll often see if you Google origin of the universe or Big Bang, you'll see at the very beginning something called a quantum fluctuation. Well, quantum fluctuations happen within this universe, so we're now inferring they happen when this universe doesn't even exist, which is a big leap of faith. 
Um, but so what I say to my naturalist friends is, look, you think every effect has a cause. I can't tell you this building just is. You would think I'm stupid or crazy or something. But, but if every effect has a cause, you have an infinite regression problem. So what does the theist do? The theist says there's more than naturalism. We, we say there's a supernatural realm, and within a supernatural realm, which doesn't follow the rules of cause and effect because it's not natural, you can infer or you can you know, uh, propose a self-existent being. You can't propose a self-existent natural thing by your own worldview. And so to me, the logical thing, if you don't want an infinite regression, is to say there must be something other than the natural world of cause and effect. But, but they want to say, you know, the, 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 the atheists will always say, well, if, if you want to say that God is self-existent, why can't I say the universe is self-existent? And my answer is because your worldview doesn't allow that. My worldview with the supernatural does allow that. It's not apples and apples, but they want to make it apples and apples. So <clears throat> what advice would you have for uh, the faculty and students uh, that are here who will be ministering to young people who are interested in going into the STEM fields, science, technology, engineering, and math. What, what, what are, how, how can we minister to them? What would, be an, what would be the best way for us to prepare them for the fields they're going into, uh, talking theologically and spiritually? Yeah. I mean, and that's a great question. And, and you know, I don't have definitive answers. I think there's a few things that have helped me along the way. You know, I was always allowed to think outside the box. You know, my brother is a theologian, is thinks outside the box in certain theological areas. And, you know, if you know who he is, Mark Strauss, you've read some of his stuff on gender issues in the Bible and all. And I think we, we, we were taught growing up that within a conservative view of Scripture, you know, there's like... Um, uh, who said it? Anthony De Dominus in Essentials Unity and Non-Essentials Diversity and All Things Charity. And that we, that's not just a trite saying. We need to live that. So the first thing I would say is explore and think, right? We've had to re-understand scripture. Before Galileo, people thought the passages that says the sun stood still means the sun moves and that the earth is firm on its foundation means the earth didn't move. And, you know, I'm still suffering the consequences of the bad some of the mistakes made 400 years ago with the Galileo trial. My colleagues still think that you know Christianity is anti-intellectual, partially because of that. We need to not make the same mistakes. And how do we not make the same mistakes? We give liberty in these non-essential things, and we encourage people to think that if what we believe is true theologically, then the truth we found, find everywhere else, whether it's science or philosophy or sociology, is going to ultimately support our beliefs. And yet, that may mean we need to change things. So, I, And then the other thing I would say is what I said before is God needs people in science. Some of the great scientists of all time, um, Maxwell and Faraday and Newton and um, Boyle. Boyle and Pascal were Christians. And nowadays, there's this assumption that, you know, science is going to drive you away from your faith. And But some of the great scientists today, like James Torrett Rice and Francis Collins, are, are Christians. And I think the more... Scientists we have are Christians who say, no, science doesn't point away from God, but points towards God. Um, the more we will influence society. Uh, you know, I, I was discipling a graduate student in philosophy, and I learned a lot from him. And what I didn't know is some years ago, I don't know the exact number, 40 or 50, the Christian worldview in philosophy was considered um, 
devoid of any substance at all. It wasn't a valid worldview within secular philosophy, but some Christian philosophers decided they were going to change that, and they began writing papers in peer-reviewed philosophical journals, and today the Christian worldview is considered a valid philosophical view among secular philosophies. They complete, philosophers, they completely change the culture in the secular field. And I think if we have more Christians in some of these fields that influence culture, like science, then um, we have the capability of changing the dialogue, of changing the culture to some degree. Wouldn't it be great if every non-believer knew that the science that we've discovered points to God instead of that the science we've discovered points away from God, which they think is true? Any other questions? Yes, Dr. Hammett and then Andrew. We have the, the problem with, with also dealing with young earth creationists who are convinced that we are fools. And so when you deal with them, what do you say to them when they say, well, the science is really on my side, not your side? Um, yeah, well, so again, I'm my, one of my pastors is young earth creationists. Some of us are going to be wrong. So I think the first thing is to be humble, right? I mean, um, but the science isn't on their side. The, the, the sad thing, um, and I want to be careful with my words, because you know, there are young earth creationists that I respect like my pastor, and I could be wrong, but I can pretty much take every piece of science that the young earth creationist says supports what they believe and show why it's not true. And, the real, and a scientist in those fields know. The, the Christian Geology Society is the largest society of of scientists who are Christians in the country. And I once asked one of the leaders of the Christian Geologist Society, how many of your Christian geologists are young earth creationists? He said less than 1%. And so, you know, if the science clearly doesn't point that way, th then we just need to be careful. And, and I think that the, you know, I'm not going to argue with the young earth creationists about the science that they think supports their view unless they want to argue with me. But people aren't don't change their minds usually because you argue, right? People change their minds because you show the love of Christ and because the truth sometimes penetrates. But I do think, you know, this goes back to your question. We need to make young earth creationism not the fundamental evangelical dogma. Yeah. We need to let our students, our kids know that you can believe in the Big Bang. You can even believe in evolution and be an evangelical Christian because there are those, and that gives them the freedom to explore the truth, right? And so, um, again, I, I personally believe that neither scientifically nor theologically young earth has a very strong case to build. My brother and I were watch, walking on the beaches of San Diego, and he's a theologian, I'm a scientist, and we remember the conversation a little bit, but I remember like this, him saying, I used to think young earth creationists were good scientists because they're not very good theologians. And I said, I used to think they must be good theologians because they're not very good scientists. And again, I may be wrong in that, but this idea that if you believe the Bible, there's one and only one view, and believing anything else is a slippery slope to heresy, we just have to stop saying that as a church. Um, I was at St. David's School some years ago in um, Raleigh, and one of the very astute um, journalism high school, somebody in high school journalism asked me, since you change your view from young earth to old earth, which is now 30 years ago, 
Um, what else in your theology has changed, right? Is it a slippery slope? And my answer is nothing has changed. It's not a slippery slope. I still believe in an inerrant authoritative word. I still believe in the deity of Christ and the virgin birth and the resurrection and salvation by grace through faith alone, right? Nothing has changed. And I think, um, and, and I don't know, from my perspective, the dogma that is divisive comes more from the younger side than the older side, although some people might disagree. We just need to stop that. We need to recognize that that kind of dogma was what put Galileo on house arrest. And again, get this, my colleagues in particle physics will not listen to me talk about Christianity partially greatly because of what happened 400 years ago. Um, there's a quote from Augustine you mentioned earlier. Why don't you want to bring that up again? There, there's a great quote from Augustine. It's long and I can't remember, but it basically says if we, um, as believers in Christ, that, that, everybody, that there are people out there who know how the universe works. They know how the stars work. They know, can predict lunar eclipses. They know how the plants work. And if we say stupid things about things they know about, how are they going to believe us when we talk about the resurrection of the dead and eternal life? And, and believe me, um, I once asked a leader of the Young Earth Creationist Movement, has any scientist ever changed their mind to, about the age of the earth based on the evidence, any secular scientist? And his answer was no. Is it really possible that there's not a single secular scientist who could look at the evidence and see that it points to that? If it's true, you'd win a Nobel Prize. You'd be famous. And the fact that the evidence for those, all the Christian geologists are old earth. I'm sure 99% of Christian astronomers are old earth. I mean, the evidence is overwhelming. To, to believe the earth is 6,000 years old. Again, God can do what he wants. He can make it look like it's got age. We should talk about that a little bit. But if you believe the record of nature, to believe the earth is young is like believing it's flat. And, and someone who understands the record of nature is going to look at you like that. So what I tell my young earth creationist pastor is if that's your belief, great, but you should know how the Big Bang points to God. So when you're sitting on an airplane and you're talking to an astrophysicist, you can talk about what he believes and how it points to God, whether you believe it or not. And we need to keep that as a viable option, even if God did make the universe 6,000 years ago with an appearance of age or something. I think Andrew had a question. Yeah, this is a passion of mine, so I get going a little bit. That's great. So the nature of our seminary is missions or taking the yeah. gospel. And uh, this is kind of a pertinent question for me. My sister is in, uh, on her, working on her doctorate in physics now. How do we take the gospel to them? Oh, that's a great question. Um, the, the first thing to do is to love them as Christ loved them, right? People are not going to come to Christ because you've argued your way them into the kingdom. They're going to come to Christ because you show them the love of Christ. Um, I was just in Austin, Texas, and a friend of mine said when he was a student um, at a university, he walked into the office of a Nobel Prize winner, someone who just won the Nobel Prize a year ago. So here's a student who has the audacity to walk into the office of a Nobel Prize winner. And he's just started talking to him. The student's a Christian. And he said, boy, it must be great since you won the Nobel Prize. And the Nobel Prize winner says to this student, it's been terrible. I've got a target on my back. My colleagues are out to ruin my career now. He says, I have a daughter who is disabled that nobody cares about. Right? 
What's going to bring that guy to Christ? Arguing them about the, you know, it's going to be showing that you love his daughter, right? Showing that you care about him as a person, that he doesn't have a target on his back. That's how people come to Christ. Now, Peter says to always be ready to give an answer for those who ask the hope in you. You need to have good intellectual answers. Jesus said the greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind. You need to know answers to reasonable questions. But people are not going to be argued into the kingdom of God. They're going to see your life. They're going to see that you love them. They're going to see that Jesus loves them. And they're going to ask you about the hope that's in you. And then they're going to say, and do I have to believe the earth is 6,000 years old to become a Christian? And you can say, no, in fact, the Big Bang points to God. Thank you. Yeah. You, you said we needed to talk a little bit about the appearance of age oh. argument. So I'll bring that back to you. So you yeah, so I have a past, another pastor at our church who um, has heard me speak multiple times, and he's noncommittal on the age of the earth. But recently he said, you said something about your belief that I cannot get out of my mind. And... And here's the thing, when, the uni- when we look at the universe, it doesn't just look old. That's the appearance of age. It looks like it has a history. So suppose I was to chop a tree down and it has growth rings. That looks like it's old. But if some of the rings are broader as if it was a wet year and some are narrower as if it's a dry year and if the tree has a scar like a lightning bolt hit it and has a hole that looks like a woodpecker pecked in it, it looks like it has a history. The universe we see looks like it has a history. Is that history real or is it imaginary? And if that history is imaginary, what about the historical evidence for the resurrection? Where do you draw the line? The young earth creationist says, well, no one was there. And that's where you draw the line. But no one was there most of the history of the universe. No, the young earth creationist thinks the flood cut the Grand Canyon, but no one was there to see it. But they say there's evidence for it, right? If you deny, it's not just appearance of age. It's appearance of history. The universe looks like it has a 14 billion year old history and you have to answer, is that a fake history or is it a real history? And, and if it's fake, then you start to wonder about God's veracity and, and what he says in his word. And if it's a real history, then it means that he, you know, again, how long is 14 billion years to an infinite God? Right? Why, why do you take 14 billion years? Well, I don't know, but it doesn't sound very long if you live for eternity. (laughs) This has been an excellent uh, conversation, and uh, I I suspect you'll have a few more questions after we finish. Uh, Join me in showing our appreciation to Dr. Strauss. We're going to have copies of the book yeah, so we're, we're, the CFC is doing, we're, we're, we're making uh, copies of the book available to all of you that are here. So if you don't have a copy of it, you do get to grab a copy as you go out. Uh, if you leave here without a book, we will have copies at the CFC, but it's going to cost you. And so this is your opportunity. Make the best of this today. Um, This is the beginning of uh, something that we're looking forward to doing over the next year. The emphasis for the CFC will be faith in the sciences Uh, next year. uh, We have... uh Uh, We're looking forward to having a number of events in which we have men like Dr. Strauss who are uh, men engaged in the sciences, who are also people of faith, women of faith, uh, who can tell us about uh, their journey with the Lord Jesus uh, and also explain to us the, the grandeur of that which he created. It's been great to have you all here. God bless you all. Have a great day.